0: Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com/slash Area 10 Church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. This summer we've been working our way through the book of 1 John, and the author of First John really has two big themes that he is constantly drawing attention back to. The first theme is that God is light, and he is the light that chases away the darkness. Because of that light, it it enables us to be broken free from the things that enslave us, to bring healing to the hurts in our life. The other big theme that John talks about is that Jesus is the full embodiment of love. And when we follow Jesus, we not only get to experience the fullness of that love, but we are also have the privilege and the task to show that love to the world around us. Now, amidst those two big themes are a lot of bits of connective tissue that talk about kind of overcoming evil, Jesus as a way of life, Jesus as a way to life, um, the idea of, of uh, really resting in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and then another aspect that we're going to lean into a little bit today, the idea of intention and where we're putting our attention and our practices. So I think it's a a common thing that exists in our life that most of us, we know how to bring intention to one area, maybe specifically, or two areas in our life. But what I would advocate for today is is the fact that the intentionality that you bring to all of your life really matters. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes, right? A, A while back, I found myself surrounded by a pretty large group of people who were going through a really rough season. And they were um, just a lot of really big emotions. And I could handle big emotions. I have big emotions. I'm very comfortable with them. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of bitterness. And I knew because of previous experiences in my life that I kind of wanted to get out ahead of some stuff. I wanted to be able to do maybe some preemptive work because I wanted to show up well for these folks in this season of their life. But I had two things in my mind. One, I didn't want to adopt the drama that was going on as my own. And let's be honest, that happens a lot easier than we expect. And then two, I don't always have clarity on my own limitations. I I think that I could do anything, and so I'll push ahead, often at the expense of a lot of people around me. And so I I made a counseling appointment. And in my first session with this counselor, um, which was fun, counseling is always interesting and and can be great, I was telling her the reason I was there, all the things that were going on, um, kind of filling her in on some of the experiences that my wife Leanne and I had navigated, where we We had to work through our own pain and frustration and fears and stress as we were helping other people do that same thing. And when you're in those kinds of positions, it just a lot of things can go sideways. You can begin to elevate the big emotions of everyone above truth, above what's real, and and certainly above the needs of your family and yourself. And so my counselor, she's writing notes, and she's saying the word interesting. And if you've ever gone to counseling, anytime your counselor's writing notes and says the word interesting... Just be prepared. And she goes, this is what I would recommend. For our future sessions, I suggest that we really focus on building um, really good habits and practices in your life so that you're not just functioning out of a space of unintended learned experience and instead out of a space of intentionality. And that line really struck me. But I didn't get a chance to think about it because then she says, but I want to ask your permission to um, dig deeper into things you say as we go along, even if they don't necessarily pertain to, to our overall goal. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those positions where you know that a trap has just been set. You're not really sure how. <laughs> that was one of those moments for me. I'm like, this is going to come back to bite me. It did. Um, but you know, I just like that, that thought of what does it look like to function out of a, of a space that's not because of unintended learned experiences and instead because of, of intention, intention and intentionality that you're bringing to it. One of the things that I realized as I began to unpack that was I have, like all of us, have a lot of experiences in my life that have molded and shaped me and, and some of them are painful, some of them aren't painful. But I had gotten to a place where I was allowing my experiences to dictate my life. And what I mean by that is I become passive, almost arrogant to my experiences, so that when I would um, be faced with a situation that, that was similar to something I've gone through before or, or an area of interest or study that I'm like, oh, I feel like I know that, I wouldn't actually plan and, and work and be intentional with, with engaging with that. Instead, I would go, well, I've done this before, so I'll get through it. And I don't think I'm, I'm unique in that. I think most of us fall back in this space of our experience as a great teacher, we know that it's going like, to help us, and somewhere along the lines, we begin to check out of the in- intentionality that we actually bring to our life. In the verses that we're going to take a look at today, John is really giving us um, a pretty strong dichotomy that forces us to ask the question, what are you putting your intention to? And it, it might be a little uncomfortable. Maybe it won't be. We'll see. Either way, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 3 um, or your Bible app. If you don't have any of those, uh, we'll throw it up on the screen. First John's at the very end of the Bible, so if you're in Revelation, turn pages forward? Backwards? Go in a direction. I'm sure you'll hit it. We're going to start in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. these verses, real fun to read, um, they could come across as having the expectation be perfection. And in talking with quite a few people about this message, I had them read these verses. I was just like, you know, what, what hits you about these verses? What stands out to you? And one of the girls that I talked to, she's, she's just starting to kind of explore who Jesus is. Like, she's kind of right at the, the front of, of her journey in faith. And she goes, I read it, and I go, oh, so I'm screwed. Like, I'm doomed. Like, I can't do this. Like, I can't be perfect, and it just makes it sound like I, I should be perfect. I talked to two people in our church who read this, been Christians their whole lives, that have never really thought about these verses, and they're like, have I been lying to myself? Maybe I'm not even saved because I still struggle. I still sin, and I don't know what to do with that. And so this is why, and we're, we're going to, it's a side tangent real quick. This is why context matters so very much context matters in every area of our life but when we're reading scripture oftentimes what happens is that we'll look at a verse or a group of verses together and instead of knowing fully what the the full context is we'll look at it looking for specific meaning to meet us exactly where we're at right or we'll we'll read it and we'll try and give meaning to it as opposed to reading what it says understanding the context and, and, and really understanding what does that mean for us today. There are two things that we need to understand from the get-go that the original audience of this letter knew. The first is that sin and Jesus, they're incompatible. They just are. Because sin stands in direct opposition to God. The second thing is that the good news of Christ, when we surrender our lives to Jesus and our sins are forgiven, even the mistakes, even the sins that we conduct in the future, they are forgiven. And John makes this clear. When we can look at these verses in the full context of the letter that John is writing, in 1 John, he makes it very clear. There will be times as you have surrendered your life to Christ that you are going to fail. And you are still forgiven. He's not advocating for perfection. He's really advocating for forcing us to look at what we are putting our intentions to. So, we're going to walk through just a few of these verses uh, a little bit at a time. Again, with verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, that we're, what John is doing here is really, he's trying to just articulate what sin is, because, you know, even now, like, right, we all have a, a version of the definition of sin in our minds. And John is trying to really articulate and make very clear, look, what sin is, is a rebellion against what God's law and what God wants is. Whether that's because we're just ignorant to it because we just don't know. We don't know any better, which happens, right? Or because we, we honestly just have built such habitual behaviors or we have just disdain for anything that is not what we want to do. That's the idea that John is, is wanting the readers to understand. And then he gets this word practice. And the word practice is used multiple times throughout the book of First John, more times than any in this particular chapter. He's not speaking to this idea of perfection. He's forcing us to examine what are we honing? What are we honing? He's speaking to the disposition of sin, to the position of our hearts. Towards sin, to the habitual nature of things that we do that we don't even we don't even think about it, we don't even realize it. It's such second nature for us that we just do it. And he gives us this, this this dichotomy of practicing righteousness or practicing sin. Are we the ones practicing righteousness, the ones that are persistently and intentionally doing the right thing as God has defined it, and being transformed by that, emulating and imitating and following the righteous one who is Jesus? Or are we the one who practices sin persistently and at many times intentionally doing the wrong thing? Whether because we're ignorant to it or because we willingly choose it and being transformed by those decisions following someone else entirely. I believe that one of the most difficult questions um, a human can ask themselves is who or what forms your view of the world? Who or what forms your view of the world? That's a big question. That's a complex question. That is not a question you are generally going to be able to answer if someone's at a coffee shop and asks you that question. Is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it your job? Is it your goals, your experiences, your hurts, your hopes, your frustrations? It can be said, and I think rightfully so and truthfully so, that all of those things make up our worldview, right? What I am really asking is what is at the very foundation? What is the the fundamental framework that all of those other things get placed on? What is the, the, the foundational and fundamental framework that you hold that forms your view of the world? I truly believe That when you can get to a place where you can answer that question, it will give you the clearest picture, the clearest picture of what influences you and shapes you and drives you the most. In my fourth session with the counselor, I was catching her up on all the fun going abouts because the proverbial poo had hit the fan and all kinds of bedlam was happening. And from my vantage point, people were more interested in putting salt in their wounds and burning bridges and finding more reasons to be angry than to um, seek to understand, or to listen, or to find ways to build reconciliation. And my stress level had increased exponentially, and my stress level had increased exponentially because I I kind of felt inadequate. It wasn't because of the conflict. I don't mind conflict, I'm fine with conflict. It was because I couldn't figure out how I can help people move forward. I, I was just really struggling trying to figure out how do I help people see like The big truth in the situation, the overview, instead of just these microscopic things where where it just seemed like people wanted to nurture their hurt more than anything else. And so I told her, but I was like, but the win here is that I've been doing the things that we've been talking about, these practices of of figuring out how to make sure there's space. And I told her, I was like, actually, I took a whole whole day off from work, and I did a lot of things that were life-giving to me. I went and hiked Buttermilk Trail, love Buttermilk Trail prayed a bunch, went for a drive, listened to music, decided to go see a movie. And I was like on my way there. I stopped by McDonald's, got some, got some Chicken McNuggets, went and saw the movie, headed home, cleared my schedule to just be at home with the girls. And I didn't even get to finish all the other things that I did when she goes, why McDonald's? And I'm like, what? You said McDonald's. Yes, I, I did. <laughs> so why? Why McDonald's? And I just looked at her just like, I'm... I, because chicken nuggets. <laughs> I, 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 don't know, I don't know what you're trying to get at. And she goes, oh, well, let, let, let me ask, ask you this in this way. Would you say that, any, and anytime someone says, would you say that, they're just setting you up. Would you say that when you are aware of your stress level and you're leaning into um, figuring out how to de-stress, that the things that you did that day are pretty typical? And her tone of voice and her body language made it really clear to me that that trap that she had set several (laughs) weeks ago suddenly got tripped. And I didn't know how, and so I was just like, yes... (laughs) And she goes, so why do, why do you think McDonald's is a part of that? And I'm like, I, I don't think McDonald's is a part of that. It was, I didn't think about it. I was on my way to the movie. I was early. I saw McDonald's, and I thought, hey, Chicken McNuggets, that sounds awesome. So I went and got Chicken McNuggets. She goes, right, but you were very specific on all these different things that you did. Why would you feel the need to be specific about McDonald's? I don't know why. And she goes, well, let's dig at that. I don't want to. That's not why I'm here. I don't want to. You gave me permission. I regret it. <laughs> and so we begin to, to dig at that. And she was like, so think of those other days or those moments when you've tried to do things that are life-giving. How many times did they include going to McDonald's? And I started to think about it, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I go to McDonald's a lot, you know? And, and it ultimately, we, we got all the way down to childhood, because of course— um, and what I, what I came to realize was, um, or what I identified was, when I was a kid and my mom and dad were fighting, or um, the realities of addiction bubbled over in a way that made just home unsafe, my mom, I, I believe in an effort to protect me, would say, hey, let's go for a drive. Let's just, let's just get out. And we had a McDonald's around the corner from my house, not like maybe a half a mile away. And so on our way out of the city, we would swing by McDonald's, she'd get a cheeseburger and a Diet Coke or an unsweet iced tea, and I'd get a Happy Meal, Chicken McNugget Happy Meal. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. And she goes, well, let me, let me ask you another question. And I didn't want her to. <laughs> she said, do you think that you use your experiences that have shaped you Um, because it's this muscle memory, or are you actually using good and healthy tools that you've cultivated? And me being me, and if you know me, when I get uncomfortable, one of two things happen. I fight, or I go into, I'm going to be as charming as possible. (laughs) And I went, um don't you think that we should really spend our time talking on other things? You know, just trying to be like sweet and off. And she, and, she, and she puts her notepad down and she like steals herself. And she goes, you like directness, right? And I'm like, oh gosh, yes. She leans into like looking at me. She goes, let me put this another way. She goes, do you think that you use your experiences to justify and use as an excuse why you don't have to have intention in your life? And I'm not kidding you when I say the only thought in my mind was I really want Chicken McNuggets. (laughs) I like panicked. I was like, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so stressed out. Man, chicken nuggets really sound good right now. The truth is I had never in my life, and I would have never in my life thought to ask myself that question. I just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have had a reason to ask myself that question, right? But then when that question was asked, That's that's a big question to have to unravel. And so over the course of several months through a lot of prayer, through more counseling, through talking with people that know me well and connecting with Leanne and asking her questions, talking to my family, I began to uncover a fundamental belief that I held so deep inside of me that I never realized was there and it was this. The only person I can count on is me. And that core... Fundamental belief dictated every sphere of my life. That belief was the framework of how I viewed the world. Everything else got layered on top of that. I don't know when it happened. I don't know why it happened. But it was there. And so when I read verse 6, which we're going to read here in a second and it says that I'm supposed to abide in him, I panic because that feels so unnatural to me. Because for the better part of my life, the only thing I knew and believed was the only person I could count on is myself. First John 3, 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The word abide here in 1 John is a huge word. He uses it 24 times through this letter. It is one of the main connective tissues. Abide, remain, stay, be connected to, first and foremost, fellowshipping with Christ. That is terrifying to me. Even over these last five years, as I continually Realign my entire life around that truth, around biblical truth, and the, around the reality of who Christ is. There is a part of me, because it was so firmly implanted that is screaming somewhere from behind No, don't trust Him. Don't abide in Him. You could only count on yourself. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me nervous. And one of the things that I came to learn and came to understand about abiding in Jesus, is first and foremost, it entails more than just belief. I know, right? You can believe something to be true, and that doesn't mean it changes anything. You can know that social media is terrible for you. That's not going to stop you from scrolling, right? You can know there are certain people in your life that just bring out the absolute worst in you. That doesn't mean that you'll limit your time with them. You can know that drinking enough water, eating right, and getting enough sleep are some of the best things you can do in your life. It doesn't mean you're going to do it. You can know that you have pain and hurt and deep traumas from childhood. That doesn't mean you're going to do anything to heal it. You could believe in Jesus. You could believe he died and rose again for your sins. It doesn't mean you're going to follow him. John is not talking about perfection, but he is talking about continually and intentionally realigning ourselves with God, abiding in him. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As we continually reorientate ourselves towards God, as we continue to realign our lives to the, to the reality and truth of Scripture, things can begin to change. Things can begin to transform. To use an old-school term um, that I honestly don't think I've ever said in a sermon, born again, born um, again, When you believe, when you surrender, when you're baptized, God's spirit begins to take root in you, which enables us to grow and transform, to experience the fullness of Jesus and navigate this life. His spirit spirit challenges us, brings light to the darkest areas of our souls, breaks the chains of the things that have held us back for so long that we don't think could ever possibly change to bring healing to the areas of our life that have marked it more than anything else. And we begin to be transformed and take on the characteristics of God's Spirit. Because that's what happens when you spend time with somebody, right? If you you hung out with my wife, Leanne, and I. Hi, honey. If you hung out with my wife and I, and then the next day you hung out with our daughter, and you didn't really know it was our daughter— you would know it was our daughter, okay? Not because of physical kind of attributes, but because of how she shows up in the world. Her temperament. Her willingness to share her opinion, even when not asked. I don't know who she got that from, but it's there. Her her joy at talking about things that she's passionate about. Her, whoo, frustration and anger when she sees something that is not fair. That's for my wife. <laughs> like wow. you can tell that it's our kid, which makes sense, right? Because she's around us a lot. We, we naturally pick up the attributes and, and different mannerisms of, of the people or the things that we are around a lot. No, I'm not even kidding. There was a year of my life when people who would meet me and they'd start to get to know me, they're like, do you know who you remind me of? and I always knew who they were going to, they're like, you remind me of Chandler Bing from the TV show Friends. This made so much sense because that year was 2004. I moved to New Orleans after graduating college. I didn't have any friends except for the ones on the DVD. And look, Chandler, Monica, Ross, Phoebe, all of them, we hung out a lot. And so I picked up mannerisms. I picked up cadences of speech. I probably said stuff like, could I be any funnier? Like, like, it was there. Because that's what happens. Whether whether we see it or not, whether we realize it or not, we are all in a constant state of transformation. We are always picking up cues from the people around us, worldviews, thoughts, senses of humors, all of those kinds of things. We're constantly changing, but understand, just because we're changing doesn't mean we're growing. And just because we're changing doesn't mean it's, it's a good change. Multiple studies in the area of social psychology have occurred over the last 15 years specifically looking at how people make lasting change, how people grow, how do people break habitual habits and patterns that are not great for their lives. And most of them really centered in on three different keys for successful change and growth. They are an understanding of an individual's underlying historical motivation to their beliefs and actions. A simpler way to say that is, what is the framework in how you view the world? What has made you into the person that you currently are? The second thing is consistent and intentional time spent practicing desired new behaviors or skills. It's not enough to know where you've come from. It's not enough to know what is shaping your worldview. What are you gonna do about it? We could get all the information in the world, that doesn't mean we're transformed by anything. And then the third thing: a social network that shares similar goals and desired outcomes. One of the first things they noticed was that true change, breaking of habitual patterns and growth cannot and will not happen in a vacuum. If it does, it's very short-lived, which speaks to the biblical truth that we're just we're wired to be in community. We need people to encourage us and challenge us and to carry us and to cheer us on and to keep us accountable. Now, when you look at those three things, and if you look at your own life or the people in your life, I'm betting that you could probably go, oh, yeah, I actually kind of see, you know, this person or that person, even maybe yourself. Like, we might know those people, Who have done a lot of the hard work to understand where they've come from, how they ended up, where they're at, what is at the foundation of their view view of the world. They're carving out time consistently and intentionally to, to learn and to change and to be the person that they know God has called them to be. And they are surrounded by a great social network, right? We know a few of those people, and when we see them, they're inspiring to us, generally. Sometimes we're like, I hate you, and I'm jealous, and I hope you fall. But most of the time, they're inspiring to us. But I think we also know those people who maybe they only focus on, on one of those things. I think we probably know a lot of people who have done the hard work of trying to understand how they got to where they're at, It's not always in light of who God is calling them to be, but they do have the understanding. But they're not really changing anything in their life, right? they just got a lot of knowledge on their trauma and their frustrations and their hurt, and nothing is really changing. And they don't have a good social network. And what we're left with oftentimes is someone who says, well, you know what? If I've learned anything, it's just who I am. And maybe you've said that. And I want to be gracious here. But when you say that's just who I am, what you're actually saying is that's just who I choose to be. And you are stripping away any and all agency you have to grow. And you're allowing your past and your experiences to dictate your present and your future. We all know those people who they haven't done a lot of introspective work to understand anything. We know those people that also, they don't have a good social network, but by golly, they are driven, right? They're achievers. They put their mind to something, they're going to do it. They want to learn a new skill, they're going to learn it. But it's often apart from those other two components. And what are we left with? We might know these people. You might be this person. The one that comes off more as a self-righteous blowhard. That when you say, man, I'm just, I'm really struggling, I really, I want to change and I don't know how, and they look at you with this confused look on their face and say something along the lines of, if you want to change, just change, it's not that hard. They oftentimes lack compassion, they lack sympathy, because they've, they've cultivated their life in such a way that they are focused on the drive and that is it. They will make what they want to happen, happen, even if it's a part from what God is telling them. We also all know those people who have a huge social network, right? They haven't done much introspective work at all except for what they found on TikTok so they could, you know, kind of give themselves a self-prescription of what what their ailment is. They're not doing any kind of work to, to move past anything, but they have a lot of people around them. And what are we left with? Someone whose identity is so amorphous so chameleon-like that it just takes the shape of whomever or whatever they're around. When we can understand the reality that God has come not just to redeem us by forgiving our sins, but to transform us into who he has really called us to be, it presents an incredible opportunity before us. John is centering in on these last few verses that a person's life is one big tell. Your life is communicating constantly to the people around you. A person's life shows what they are orientated to. A person's life shows what is important to them. A person's life shows what they are putting intention and habits behind. A person's life is communicating constantly what they believe about God, what they believe about themselves, and what they believe about others. And so let me ask you a hard question because you know I'm going to. What is your life communicating? What is your life communicating to your family? And to your friends? What is your life communicating to your neighbors and your coworkers? If you really want to dig deep, what is your life communicating to the people you don't like? The people that you consider your enemy? What do you think that your life is saying? Because let's, let's just be uncomfortable real quick for a second. This is not to throw shade at any individual person. This is me putting up a giant canopy of shade over all of us real quick, okay? We are so equipped and so ready to call out hypocrisy and hypocrites anytime we see it, right? Because we know what it's like. We know what it's like when we hear someone say what they believe we know what it's like when someone says, I believe this. My life is about this. This is what I care about. This is what my intentions are. But their actions and their life say something totally different, right? I'm not asking what do you say you believe. I'm not asking what you say to your friends about what you care about. I'm asking what does your life communicate? Because the reason we are so Easily motivated to call out hypocrisy is because every one of us understands the self-loathing that we feel when we ourselves are hypocrites. We call it out because we know we can be it. We recognize it because we have done it. So what is your life communicating? What is your life communicating about what you actually believe about God Yourself, and the people around you. Lasting change and growth, it requires something of us. But, there's always a but, guys. We're not on our own. The second part of verse 8 in chapter 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The implications being that Christ came to destroy sin. He came to forgive sins so that we can be free. So that we can come to an understanding of who we're actually meant to be. So that we don't have to be enslaved by our past or the things that we struggle with. So that we can experience healing. So that we can have hope and faith and purpose in our lives. And that implication is echoed throughout the New Testament. That Christ meets us where we're at and he meets us in our intention and he will help fight alongside of you. He's not against you. Jesus didn't come to fight against you. He came to fight for you and alongside of you. He didn't come to bring destruction to you. He came to destroy sin. Not because sin is fun, but because sin is fatal. Because apart from God, when we're not putting that intention, when we're not making those habits of abiding in Christ, our habitual nature just begins to take over, and slowly and methodically, it consumes and destroys us, and it doesn't have to. The expectation on us is not one of perfection. It's about intentionality and where we're putting our intention and where we're putting our habits.